Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Good morning. I'm Jody, one of the pastors here, and I'll be preaching to you from God's Word this morning from Psalm 127. Psalm 127. If you've had a child born into your home and had a visit from one of the pastors, you've probably had this psalm read to you, either that or its companion psalm, 128. Both of those psalms talk about the blessing and heritage of children. But Psalm 127 is really a psalm for builders. Uh, Spurgeon calls it the builder's psalm. Everyone is a builder. Some of us are builders vocationally, but all of us are builders in a deeper, bigger sense. All of us are engaged in the work of building our lives. And that's the way Solomon is using this image of a house and a city to figuratively to, as an analogy for the work of constructing a life. King Solomon knew a thing or two about building. He was himself a very successful and competent builder. He oversaw the work of the uh, construction of the first temple in Jerusalem, which was an incredible project, a glorious building, one of the architectural marvels of the ancient world. You can read about it in First Kings and Second Chronicles. And it's just a marvel of a thing. He also built other uh, important buildings, palaces, buildings of state. And so he was uh, the principal architect and, uh, and manager of those projects and uh, was no, knew a thing or two about building. He also knew a thing or two about wisdom, which is really the essential ingredient in any undertaking and in building. Uh, you got to have sense from day one, from the planning stages all the way through to the end. You've got to have good judgment, good sense. You've got to have wisdom. What is the source of wisdom? Solomon, the wise, taught us in Proverbs in a number of places that the fear of the Lord, that is the origin, the source, the beginning of wisdom So fearing God in the work of building our lives, that's the essential message of this psalm, Psalm 127. Let's read it together. This is God's word and it is eternally true. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. So the first verse here hangs on two metaphors, two central images, the image of a house and the image of a city. And Solomon's not simply referring to structures of wood, stone, steel, but to, um, he's using these as figures for the entire scope of the domestic and the civil order, all of the stuff of life. And then tied to each of these images are the essential human activities basic elements of life, which are building and watching. The house is built and the city is watched. Both of those things go very much hand in hand. They go together. Um, One follows after the other. Uh, What gets built must be 
preserved. Things fall apart, if you hadn't noticed. If you ever bought a home, owned something, just immediately starts to break down. It has to be maintained, has to be guarded and watched over and cared for. These are two aspects of one business, and that business, according to Solomon, here is the business of life, guarding or building and guarding. And when it comes to the business of life, everyone, as I said, is a builder or is meant to be. And by necessity, we're watchmen too. Adam was put into the garden, you remember, to cultivate and to keep the garden. And he was commanded to fill the earth and subdue it, to expand his garden house out into the world. So God commissioned the first man, Adam, a builder. And that's been our essential calling as men and women in this world ever since. We can rebel against that calling. We can do our level best to get away with staying in bed all day, not doing anything. We can sin in it in many, many ways. We can make a mess of it, be a colossal failure, but it is our calling nonetheless. We are builders. No builder now wants to build in vain. That's the stuff of nightmares, building in vain. No architect, no engineer wants to devote a decade of their life to designing an important and, and overseeing the project of an important new bridge, only to see that bridge collapse as soon as cars go, start going over it. That's, I mean, that is like a builder's nightmare, is to have his work be in vain, to be fruitless, to come to nothing. This psalm, though, confronts us with the very real possibility that all of our labors in this world, the work of our life, could be for nothing. It could come to nothing. It could come crashing down around us. What do we normally attribute failure to? We normally attribute failure to not working hard enough, not working smart enough, foolishness on somebody's part somewhere, and those are causes of failure. Solomon makes it clear that those are not primary causes. Those are secondary causes. The primary cause is in verse one, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. The success of all of our work, every endeavor, every project, every study, every pursuit, the success of that depends entirely on God's blessing. Without his power, without his help, it will not succeed. Everything fails without him, even the best of plans. The, the people of Babel, remember back in Genesis, the people of Bab- Babel had a plan. They had a project. They wanted to build a city and a tower in the midst of the city that would uh, go into heaven, and they wanted to make a name for themselves. They said to themselves, let's go build a, a tower and a city whose top, the, tower, the, top will reach, or the top of the tower will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. That was their ambition and their goal. That's the project. And what came of that project? Why did it fail? Not for lack of ability. God looked down on it and he said, there is nothing that will be impossible for them. They'll achieve this and it won't be good. And so what did God say? He said, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. The project came to nothing. It was vain building because God worked against it. God was opposed to it. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations and frustrates the plans of the peoples. That's what Psalms 33.10 says. Now, that means that God at times works against the plans of men and frustrates them. Why does he do that? 
Those plans are not pleasing to him. They are not plans he is prepared to bless and to make prosper. And he actually works against them and frustrates them. Now, the, Solomon's personal experience as a, building, as a builder was completely different. When he gave himself to the building of the temple, that project went swimmingly. If you read about it, it just sounds like a, a, a good time was had by all. It was a marvelous endeavor. It was hard, but it happened. It came together. They even had their uh, pagan neighbors to the north, the Phoenicians, at their beck and call. You know, like saying, hey, please let us help. We want to help. This is exciting. And the difference between the people of Babel and Solomon and the Israelites under his leadership was that God was in it. God was in it with them. He blessed it. The success of all our labor entirely depends on God's blessing. So what do we learn from that? Well, we learned that we should commit our way to the Lord. We should seek out very carefully to know whether what we have what we desire to do, what we propose to do, what we've committed to do, has his blessing upon it, whether it's something that is, he's prepared to bless. Because we do not want our work to be in vain. That is the, I mean, the awful thought of looking back on a life that was in vain is horrible. We should, we should be sobered to look to the Lord and to consider very carefully whether or not what we have proposed to do with our life, with each day, is something he is prepared to bless. Because without his blessing, it will fail. It will be in vain. We should pray. We should pray at the start of each day. Samuel Johnson, who wrote the English Dictionary. Is that what it's called, the English Dictionary? All English Dictionaries, English Dictionaries? Anyway, he wrote a dictionary. He was a very smart man. A very capable man, a man gifted for that work and project, and yet he had the habit of reciting prayers at the beginning of his labors. Each, each day, he has prayers that are titled, for when I sit down to work on the dictionary, <laughs> for when I study languages, for when I do this or that. And we have records of those prayers that he took the time to write out and, to, and was humble enough to seek the Lord's blessing on his work. We should seek, we should pray. We shouldn't take our, the success of our work for granted. We should seek the Lord's blessing for it. Now this is true also when it comes to things that are just obviously good, that seem to just obviously have God's blessing upon them, even in scripture. King David went, uh, proposed to build a house for God and who could argue with his desire? God's ark, the symbol of his presence was in a shabby tent, had no stately glory, and David, meanwhile, had a palace of his own, and he thought to himself, a very godly thought, very reasonable thought, I should do something about this. I'm going to do something about this. And the answer to, from God was, no, no, that's not for you to do. That's for Solomon, your son, to do. And so what we should realize is that just because something is on the surface, seems good and completely reasonable and godly and pleasing to God does not mean it's for us to do. Not all works, though good, are good for you. And so what you should do is be very careful to seek out whether you should do that good and godly thing. 
And a good way to do that is to approach your brothers and sisters, pastors and elders in the church, and to seek godly counsel. In a multitude of counselors, there is safety. If you don't want to build in vain with your life, seek the safety of godly counsel. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. The fruitfulness and potency of every work depends on God's blessing. So does the maintenance and the longevity and the protection of our work. We're no more able to protect ourselves and our work than we are to accomplish it without God. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. So the whole history of warfare teaches us that enemies manage to outsmart even the most careful watchmen. There are ways to evade notice. And that brings about the demise often of the, the people who are trying to protect themselves. We can pop vitamin C pills, chewable things, you know, every hour and still come down with the flu. We, um, we might feel endangered as a community and decide that it's in our interest to triple the size of our police force and to put CCTV cameras on every street corner and still fall victim to a crime. Dangers and risks and vulnerabilities are everywhere in our life. And they are far too many and far too strong <laughs> to be able to manage them and to protect ourselves and to be vigilant enough, strong enough to be safe. There is just no safety in the world. We are vulnerable and exposed in very profound ways all the time to danger and risk. Solomon calls us here to trust, entrust ourselves to God, finally. God is the one who keeps us safe. Unless he's keeping us safe, there's no protection. He is the protector. We really are impotent when it comes to providing for and defending ourselves. Here's what Calvin said on this. When a house is planned or a certain manner of life is chosen, yea, even when laws are enacted and justice administered, all this is nothing else than to creep upon the earth. That's all we, that's all we manage to accomplish is with the best laid plans and the most careful thinking and the strongest defenses, we manage only to creep upon the earth. Bob Dylan puts it this way, a song I just love called Idiot Wind. If you don't know that song, you should. But the very last song, the joke, so he's been like accusing his significant other through the song of being an idiot. Well, in the, in the last verse, the joke's on both of them. And he acknowledges that by saying, we're idiots, babe. It's a wonder we can even feed ourselves. And that's the truth. It is a wonder. We barely managed to creep upon the earth. Solomon tells us here that the source of this wonder is the grace and kindness, the vigilance of God. Is God able to help you? Is he willing to help you in the building of your life? Is he reluctant to pour out grace and help and strength and provision for you? We've sung about it this morning, how many times in the first song this morning, um, affirmed that we've, we've observed him many times doing this, but here's what he says in his word. God is able, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. There is abundant and ample provision 
sufficiency, protection, and God. And so the call of the psalm is to, to look to him, depend upon him with every endeavor, with every care that we have. Are you building your life in this way? Are you relying on God and trying to please him? Or are you like the people of Babel who said, let's build for ourselves a tower and make for ourselves a name? Do you attribute the successes of your life to God? Or do you claim them for yourselves? Are your ambitions your own? Or have you studied to know whether they are God's ambitions first and that he has given you to have them? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Solomon goes on in verse two to say, it's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. In the building of your life, the development of your business, the tending of your homes, the studying for the SAT, whatever it is you're doing, do you know when to quit? It's an important question that we should face. Burning the candle at both ends, as, not as a temporary solution to a problem, but as a mode of operation, as your 30-year plan, is self-defeating and not honoring to God. God has determined that we should sleep. We need about eight hours a night. That's about a third of your life that you will spend sleeping if you're in obedience to God and to your own needs. You will burn yourself out if you do not rest. And so one aspect of trusting God, a very practical and tangible aspect of trusting God, built into every day, is that you will set your work aside, you will entrust it to God's care as you shut your eyes and check out and rest and, and be rejuvenated. There's a cult of productivity all around us. You can read about it on the internet, you can, re, you can find endless applications in the app store to help you um, devote yourself as a good disciple in the cult of productivity. And the promise of the, of the productivity gospel is that you will create all kinds of space for all the rest and the leisure and the pursuits of refreshment that you can imagine. You know, this is the way you can accomplish your tasks and have, you know, rich, abundant life. What people who have tried this for years and you know, who are productivity junkies, but are like, you know, trying to get on the wagon as a productivity junkie, what they will say is that it only created space for more work. <laughs> it works, it's effective, and the work never ends. And so it was just ever in front of me. I have created more space for, for me to do more work. That's what happens. Not that productivity is bad, not that these helps are bad, but we, we don't give ourselves to the gospel of productivity. Solomon says there's a time and a place for rest. We have to learn in faith how to put the hammer down and trust the building to God and sleep. Sleep is God's provision for you. He says it's a gift from him. He gives to his beloved Sleep, or even in his sleep, depends on how you read it. Written originally in Hebrew, and the truth is, a lot of phrases in Hebrew we don't know the meaning of. This is one of those places, and both readings, I think, are possible. You can say either that God gives sleep as a gift to those he loves, or you can say that God, while his beloved sleeps, is 
providing and caring for him. The work goes on under God's management while his people sleep. Either way, it honors God, it makes sense, and it's good for us to contemplate. So on the one hand, if it means that God gives sleep to those he loves as a gift, that is a sweet promise, because many of us have spent wake, wakeful, sleepless, restless nights, worried about things, carrying loads, or just simply not able to sleep for inexplicable reasons. This is a promise that we can claim. God gives to his loved ones sleep. Lord, give that gift to me. I need it desperately. I look to you to give it. I've claimed that promise for myself on sleepless nights. I've claimed it with and for you, or some of you who have struggled in that way. The other reading, God is faithfully providing for us, even while we're sleeping, is a rebuke of our tendency to try to eke out, squeeze out more success, more productivity, more life from a day than God has allotted to us. Is that you? Do you find it difficult to trust God with the work of each day? Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And so for many of us, basically all of us, all of us have to trust God and go to sleep. But some of us really need to hear this. Sleeping, for some of us, is an act of faith. Many of us struggle to trust God with the work of a day, And many of us also struggle to trust him with the work of a week. Laying aside our work to keep the Sabbath day holy is also an exercise in faith. God has appointed one day in seven that we would say, okay, enough's enough. Six days was sufficient for that. Today I'm going to give myself to to the Lord, to the refreshment that he has for me in this day. I'm going to do that in faith, trusting that he will provide. It's a confession of faith, a very profound one that Christians make every week. Do you trust God to provide for you? Now, there's another way we go about this. There's the lazy man's approach um, to eking out more life, squeezing it out out of the day. We've put in, you know, we, we, we just have to have some me time late, in, late at night. You know, if we don't get that time watching our show or whatever, going over print, Pinterest, we, if we don't get that, We just, you know, we haven't had, the whole day has been filled with demands. People have said, I need you. I need this. I need that. And I just have to have that little bit of something for myself. That too, if it comes at the expense on a consistent basis of regular rest and good, it can be faithless of us. God and what he's provided and chosen for me that day was insufficient. I got to squeeze more out for me. Don't be faithless. Examine your habits. God's very practical in what he requires of us, and faith is not this airy-fairy thing. (laughs) It gets real practical, and sleep is very practical. Now, none of this is an excuse for us to be lazy. Scripture abominates laziness, sloth, The Holy Spirit here is not condemning laboring or watching. He's not even condemning hard labor or careful watching, but only laboring and watching that's without faith, without dependence upon him. Calvin says, it's not the will of the Lord that we should be like blocks of wood 
or that we should keep our arms folded without doing anything, but that we should apply to use all the talents and advantages which he has conferred upon us. God would have us use the resources and to use them diligently and faithfully that he's given us. So the message of this psalm is not let go and let God. It's a common phrase, but that is not the message of this psalm. Timidity, passivity, laziness, standing back with our, old, our arms folded like a block of wood, that is not what God has for us to do. But neither is the message God helps those who help themselves as if he was somehow dependent on us and waiting us to be the first mover. As this is, comes closer, this maxim attributed to Oliver Cromwell is, is, comes closer, and that is trust in God and keep your powder dry. That's what he said to his troops. Trust in God and keep your powder dry. We got work to do, but our hope is in the Lord. That's the biblical priority and order. These verses assume that we will work. It's not saying don't work and trust God. It assumes that we will work, but it wants us to trust God in our working. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. In verses three to five, the rest of the psalm, Solomon continues the theme of building and takes us right to the central column of the house, the very essence of the structure, the place of greatest potential strength and also the greatest vulnerability in the project of life. That's the gift and heritage of children. Nowhere is our dependence on God more evident than at this point, the point of our children. Verse three, behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So it says clearly that children are a gift. This word can also be translated heritage or inheritance. Most, for most of us, the, the prospect put, you know, the, the particular people and what the inheritance comes at the cost of for them. But still most of us approach the prospect of inheriting money or assets as a very exciting and positive thing, as a solution to some problems that we're hoping will come, come to us someday. Do you think of children as an inheritance or as a reward? It's very tempting to think of them otherwise. They come into this world, and one of the very earliest signs of their existence is they make their mother sick. Sometimes very sick. And that's just a little foretaste of the glories to come. <laughs> I mean, I, I, seriously, the work of children, the work of bearing them, the work of nurturing and caring for them is very difficult and is attended with very real pains and sorrows and heartaches, difficulties. God would have us think of children positively not as penalties or as burdens, but as favors from him. Notice how many of the words and phrases that Solomon uses here are focused on getting us to love and accept the idea of children. They're called, in verse 3, gifts. They're called rewards. He uses this beautiful poetic expression, fruit of the womb, gorgeous phrase. It's of a very ancient origin. It goes all the way back to the writings of Moses in Genesis. 
It's very clear that they're assets. That's how he views them. They're like as useful to parents as, as arrows are to an archer, to a warrior. It's very useful. They are a blessing to a man and they bring happiness to his life. That happiness increases with their number. Children add honor and dignity to a man and increase his confidence so that when he stands before his enemies in the city gates, at the law courts of the ancient world, he won't be intimidated. But they represent him well and they speak to his character. There's, I mean, everything, everything about children presented here is positive, unapologetically positive. And here's the problem. I stared at that for like three hours yesterday and I even called Jenna. I was like, I got a problem. Reality is different. For many of us, reality is painfully different. In some cases, horribly different than what Solomon presents here. And so how do I reconcile? How do, I, how do you preach without hurting people? Either by just ignoring their pain or by pointing out their pain. All of these claims that Solomon's making could be objected to if, they, if we weighed them only against our experience. The pains associated with children are real and sometimes really awful. And some of you are feeling those pains and are very aware of them at this very moment. But God who inspired these words is certainly aware of the griefs that you carry because of your children. He is, after all, the one who said to Eve, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. And he's the one who, after promising Eve a child redeemer, a child of promise who would be born from her, allowed her firstborn son, Cain, to be a murderer and a son of perdition. He was well aware of the sorrows and the reproach borne by Sarah and Rebecca and Hannah and Elizabeth and other godly women in Scripture, he regarded and was intimately acquainted with the grief of his servant Job, who suffered the loss of all his children in a single day. He does not, he's not unaware. He's not callous. He's not unsympathetic when he tells us children are a blessing and a reward. God knows he knows what it looks like when we, to us, when we, some of us read these words. He knows what it feels like. But it is his prerogative to define what children are. And he tells us that children are a blessing. We are nowhere more vulnerable to God and to one another than at the place of our children. A number of reasons for this, but one is because they represent for us the hope of a future. Calvin says, in a man's children, God gives him new strength that he, would, that he who would otherwise straightway decay may begin, as it were, to live a second time. A very profound sense they represent for us the, the hope and promise of a future, a legacy. And we live again a second time, hopefully, through our children. Obviously, that can be abused, but there's something natural and just true about it. 
That's what children represent for us. Also, our reputations are bound up with our children. It's just, it's just the way it is. Our children either affirm things about our character and our approach to life, or they expose things about our character and approach to life. It's inevitable. All of us will be exposed to some degree by the sins and failures of our children. That is a place of vulnerability. I mean, very, very vulnerable to God, to one another, and to our children at the place of our reputation. What do we do about this? Reality that we experience and we've tasted and know and feel what God says. How do we reconcile these things? Well, we start by believing that when God says children are a gift and a reward, they are. We trust God. That's what God says they are. We accept that. Well, what does it look like to accept that, to believe it, and to live like that? Well, we should be open, first of all, to the gift and blessing of children. And this is a plague on our nation, that we reject this gift. Brothers and sisters, we should be open to the gift and blessing of children. They are a gift from God, and this is one of the most, this is the first place, the first way we sign our um, love and acceptance of that gift is we allow God to give it to us in the context and the bonds of marriage. We should be thankful and bless God for the children we have. It's very easy to be frustrated, overwhelmed, resentful, annoyed by our children. We should not do that. We should be thankful. We should bless God. We should turn that ship around as soon as it starts heading that way and just say, thank you, Lord for this opportunity and the gift of these children. We should be careful to refer to children piously, as Solomon does here in this scripture, not as accidents, but as gifts, as treasures, not as burdens, but as blessings. We should hate and publicly oppose the murder of children. It should be very much on our radar and something that we actively work against as far as we are able lawfully to do so. Here's a good one. We have a lot of large families. Have you noticed that? Anybody watched the videos of Palm Sunday or, or other videos? Max's sermon up here on Easter. We've got a lot of large families developing here. We do not compete with one another over the number of children. God says they're a reward. They are not a reward in that sense. They are an unmerited favor from God, a gift. That's what he's saying. It's not like, oh, yeah, you deserve a child. Who deserves a child? Nobody deserves a child. They come as a gift from God, and we don't compete over them. We should be very sensitive to those who are childless, We should pray with and for them and encourage them. This is a burden that they bear and a sorrow and a cross. And we should be sensitive to them. And if you don't possess the gift of children yourself, you can also signal and affirm the blessing of children by helping the rest of us with our children. There is so much work 
with children, and God has so bountifully blessed us with children, it really does need to be a cooperative effort. We need one another's help. We need a lot of help. We should also be very open to one another's advice and, and observations about our children and their needs. That's hard. We're vulnerable, remember? There's Awana. There's nursery. You can teach in schools. If you don't have children of your own, that doesn't mean you have to be childless in your life. Number two, we should trust God with our children and not be afraid. There are many reasons to be afraid about children, for our children, for ourselves and having children. Spurgeon says children are doubtful blessings because we are doubtful, doubtful people. We should trust God that when he provides a blessing and gives a gift and calls it a reward, that it doesn't come, you know, with like disclaimers and all these negatives, you know, that really outweigh the advantages of the thing. One um, commentator says, if God gives us children, he will make provision for them. Having done the greater, he will do the less. Isn't that a sweet comment? Having done this incredible miracle of creating a soul and causing it to grow and bringing it into the world, he can provide you a van if you need a van or a house if you need a house. And these are lesser things. These are, these are not something to worry about or fear. If God gives us children, he will make provision for them. We should claim God's covenant promises regarding our children. God said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. As children of Abraham by faith, we inherit this promise. We can claim it before the Lord that he would be a God, not just to us, but to our children. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. We have to depend on him in one way as we plead with him to be faithful to his own promise to be a God to our children. Seeing the great blessing that Solomon tells us our children can be, point four, we should diligently use the godly means at our disposal, appointed in his word, to see them become so. One of the, I don't have it in front of me, but what God says about Abraham is, I have commanded Abraham, We've heard sermons on this. It's a great passage. Is it Genesis 18, I think? I've commanded Abraham that he would do this and this and this in commanding his household so that I could bring about the promises that I have made concerning him and his children and his offspring. There's a, there's a relationship between the workings of God and the will of God and the agency of man. If God has given you direction and tools to use, and, and told you to get to work, get to work. If you want to know more about what that work looks like in practical ways, the pastors are happy to meet with you. We try to meet with uh, couples when they've had their first child. If that hasn't happened for you, come see us. There is wisdom. We can help you see in God's word. There's a lot to know. And we can help you find some practical ways forward that you can use the means God has appointed to bring about the blessings he's promised. 
Finally, we should not put our hope in our children, but in God. There's many outcomes when it, when it comes to our children. God's not bound to do this or that, even when we claim his promise. His promises are not null and void just because there are Esau's or Cain's that he allows to be. Some of our children will be Esau's and Cain's. If, if, if history serves, they have been and will be still. We don't put our trust in our children. That's not our hope. It's our duty. It's our desire. But it's not our hope. Our hope is in firmer things, more secure things. It's in the mercy of God. It's in the power of God. It's in the will, provision of God. And it's in the kingdom of God. That's the house, finally, that all of us desire for ourselves and our children. And that's the house that God has, is preparing for us. And we're to live in this world as strangers and aliens, just like our father Abraham, who by faith lived as an alien in the land of promise. And he prospered there. So even in the midst of prosperity, whether we're in the midst of things going really well and all of our children rise up and call us blessed and we bless them and everything's great, we may find ourselves there. We may find ourselves in a very different place. Either way, we live our lives like Abraham as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob who were fellow heirs of the same promise. Why? He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's where we put our hope. That's where we fix our gaze. Build your house. Build your house. It honors God for you to do that. That's what he's put you here to do. Raise your family. Do your work. But remember, in the midst of it, you are a vapor and a mist. You're just a bit of grass that grows up in the day and the sun beats down on it and it withers and dies and is cut down. And all of us will be cut down. All of us will die. And who knows what will come after. But we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is cut down or torn down, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And this is where we look. And this is where we hope. And this is what we work towards in our lives and for our children. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us and bless this reading and preaching of your word, that you'd make us wise into salvation, that you'd make us godly in our work and in our pursuits, that we would rely entirely on you and your power and bless you um, for the strength that you provide. And I pray that you would help us in our parenting to love children and receive them as a gift and to honor you, um, and we do ask that you would be faithful to make our children believe and to make them part of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.